Hey, this is Carl Anderson. I'm the senior pastor of Sierra Bible Church, and this is our sermons podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope that this message fills your soul with hope, helps you see the beauty of Jesus, and allows you to feel the love that God has for you. If you want more information about experiencing God's love for you personally, head over to sierrabible.org and contact one of our pastors. I love you, and I'm praying for you. Thank you, Brother Dean. If you have your Bible, please open with me to that passage, as we will be working through chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. Uh, We have been on a journey through the book of Hebrews over the course of the last um, number of months, and we find ourselves ourselves, uh, concluding chapter 6 today. And the chapter 6 began, actually it began back in chapter 5 with a digression from where he was going and explaining this priesthood of, of Melchizedek, Jesus being in the priesthood of Melchizedek, and then he just takes a pause for about a chapter and a half and takes a digression to try to get his audience's attention. And I know it is the first time in the history of the world that a Christian teacher has been explaining something about God and has needed to go on a digression. It certainly never happens with any pastors at Sierra Bible Church in being digressed by uh, the word barbecue. Or the NFL football team, the Patriots. And we'll see what uh, Renee's favorite digression is moving forward at some point here. Well, we are in the conclusion of the digression of chapter 6, that we're going to finish it out and then begin uh, an exposition center uh, portion of Hebrews starting next week in chapter 7. Well, let's begin by asking your, let me ask you a question. Uh, what, what comes to mind when I say the word hope? When I say the word hope, I hope you have a good understanding of the word hope. But when I say the word hope, most of us ha- have adopted kind of our cultural understanding in the, the modern English w- word hope uh, to express some sort of optimistic wish for the future. I hope I can lose some weight this fall. I hope I don't lose my job. I hope my kids won't begin behaving like a bunch of rabid maniacs. I hope the Chicago Bears win the Super Bowl. As you can see, our understanding of the word hope is not rooted in certainty or assurance. But brothers and sisters, when we talk about the word hope biblically in general and hope in particular in the New Testament, there is a a function of certainty. And this is where we are, this is where the author of the Hebrews is going, and this is where we are going in the message to help us anchor our hope in the certainty of God's promise. If we want the message in a sentence, it is this. Jesus is a better high priest, so we should have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the certainty of our hope. And he gives three pictures of what hope looks like. 
First, he gives hope as an example, an example of hope. Then he gives hope as the anchor, where the, where the hope is anchored. And then finally, he gives what hope is in a person. So as you have been uh, tracking with us through the book of Hebrews, uh, we, we see that the author is beginning to explain these deep truths of the gospel, these deep understandings of, uh, of what, who Jesus is and how Jesus particularly applies to his audience's life. He begins speaking about Melchizedek. He begins, begins speaking about the priesthood of Melchizedek and how Jesus fulfills the high priesthood in a different order than the priesthood of Levi. And then he goes on this long digression. He goes on the digression because he doesn't think that the people are ready to hear what he has to say about Jesus' priesthood and the line of Melchizedek because they have been walking with Jesus for so long, but they're still in a state of immaturity. So he needs to wake them up a little bit and say, I, I want to explain this deeper, but some of you are, are hard to understand. And then he goes even deeper than that and he says, some of you potentially may even be flirting with apostasy. And apostasy is a strong warning that, that for those who, who commit it, you just don't want to be in that category. And he warns them of it. And last week, he brought it back up from the depths of apostasy to say, at the very personal level, I am sure of better things in your case. Things that belong to salvation. And he begins to encourage them in very specific ways. And he brings them up from this, this place of uncertainty into an encouragement to see hope being lived out in their life. And now he's going to catapult them into the heavens to see where true, lasting, substantive, real, eternal hope resides. And he begins in verse 13 by talking about the certainty of God's promise. Verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, you want an example of hope? You want an example of the faithfulness of God? Look back into the Old Testament, into the life of Abraham. Can we all agree that Abraham was, the, receive, was the, the one who received God's promises and that God was faithful to? If we look back in verse 12, we see that the author of the Hebrews was encouraging his listeners to imitate the faith of those who have gone before them and have inherited the promises. Look at verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now he wants to give a specific example. This is what it looks like for God to be faithful to his promises in the example of the life of a man named Abraham. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Do you remember when you were a kid? Maybe kids these days don't do it. It was pretty popular in my day when uh, we were kids and, and I wanted a, a baseball card of my friends, specifically a baseball card of the greatest slugger in major league history of the Chicago, first baseman of the Chicago White Sox, Frank Thomas. 
And I don't care what Brandon Stewart or Mike Gersh has to say about either the Dodgers or some baseball history guy. Well, you're not taking in X-whip or whatever uh, statistic he has to throw at, throw at you. Let's say I wanted a baseball card of Frank Thomas, and my friend just opened up a pack of tops, and he got a baseball card of Frank Thomas. And I said, I really want that card. And he says, let's make a deal. I'll give you this card if you help me do my chores at my house for an entire week. Oh, for a week? Deal. Now, my friend might say, okay, I, I trust you as my friend. I trust you that you're going to follow through on this promise. I'll give you the baseball card, but what did my friend force me to do to swear by something greater than myself? We didn't just swear, we pinky swore. And for a young child, a grade school child growing up in the late 80s and early 90s, the pinky swear is a socially binding contract on which if the pinky swore is broken, the friendship is over. Can I get an amen? Any, any pinky swearers out there? It is a socially binding contract, a socially binding oath that says my character is going to be faithful to fulfill the duties of the pinky swear. And if I do not fulfill my promises, then our friendship is done. I'm swearing by something greater than myself. I'm swearing on the friendship itself. Well, how does God seal his promises? Who does God swear by to show his people that he will be faithful to his promises? When God looks around, he's like, I'm kind of in a category of my own here. If I force them to swear by someone greater than themselves, they could swear by the king, they could swear by the nation, they could swear by their business, they could swear by even their God. But when I look around, I have no one greater to swear by. So I'm going to root my promises in my very own character. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, verse 14, saying this to Abraham, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. God sealed his promises in his own character to Abraham, saying, Abraham, I promise to bless you, and I promise to multiply you. Now, this puts Abraham in the position of response, does it not? God has said this one way to Abraham, unequivocally, I will bless you. Without condition, I will multiply you. But this still causes Abraham to have a response. So how did Abraham respond to the unequivocal promises that God had made him? Verse 15. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. Abraham's response was that God has said a word to me. 
God has promised me to bless me and multiply me. And therefore, I'm going to wait patiently for God to fulfill his promise. And we all know the story that God put him to the test, did he not? In Genesis chapter 12, God promises to make Abraham a great nation. In Genesis chapter 15, he promises to give Abraham a son from whom the entire nations will be blessed. And he gives an oath to Abraham. Then uh, Abraham has a son through Sarah named Isaac. And then in Genesis chapter 22, Isaac, his faith is tested when God calls Abraham to bring Isaac up to the mountain to sacrifice his one and only son. And he brings Isaac up to the mountain and he's, wait, he's already waited patiently for God to fulfill the promise and giving him a child of the promise. And now he is called to sacrifice that very own child through whom is his seed, who, through whom the blessing of God has come. But he's, he thinks God is going to be faithful to his word. He's told me to do this, so I am going to wait patiently and see how God fulfills his word. And we all know the story in Genesis chapter 22. Uh, as Abraham is on the altar ready to slay his very own son, he, God says, stop. And a substitute ram is put before the altar and sacrificed in the place of his own son. And then God gives this promise in verse, that we have in verse 14. Surely I will bless you. Surely I will multiply you. Abraham's faith was tested and he waited patiently to inherit the promises. When I was uh, in college, a few friends of mine decided to start a concert promotion business. We were just four guys in a college dorm room saying, you know what, it'd be really cool to bring bands to our campus. So, why not, start a, why not start a concert promotion business? We drew up a partnership agreement. All of us, sign, all, all, four of us, all four of us signed it, and we began working the phones. It did not take long before we signed a major Christian band that was touring throughout the country to come and take a stop on their nationwide tour at our, at our Christian college that, that we were going to. And... Uh, it didn't take long after this massive event with thousands of people where four guys in the middle of the dorm room brought in the, this band. It didn't take much long, long after the event for us to say, we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> we had the trust among the four of us that we would not go back on our word, but we did not necessarily have the competency to be concert promotion uh, gurus, uh, tycoons, in the midst of a, a very weird and unique industry. We made lots of money that time, and then we completely lost it in two subsequent concerts when nobody showed up. <laughs> and then we backed out, and then I backed out and said, I don't think this is where God is calling me long term. When we get to a place where we have trouble digesting and allowing God's promises to sink deeply into our soul, it's usually at the root, the, the root cause of it is usually one of two things. 
One, we just simply don't believe that God is going to be faithful to his word. We, have, we don't trust his character. We hear his word, but we see the, the extenuating circumstances of life and say, you know what, it, it's, it's just impossible. It's not going to happen. God is not going to fulfill the promises that he has made to me in his word. And we doubt his character. Or secondly, we doubt his competency. Maybe we say, yeah, God, we trust your word to do it, but you really aren't able to fulfill what you have said you are going to do in my life. And therefore, we start drifting away from him. Start drifting away from the people in our lives who will speak God's words to us, who will affirm the promises of God to us, and we begin drifting Abraham was like my three friends and I in our college days. He, he, he believed trust God's trustworthy character without even seeing God's competence. He didn't even see God's ability to follow through on his promises. But Abraham trusted God's character, and then he experienced God's competence and his blessing to the degree that he became, he and his descendants became a great nation, and he received the blessing. Brothers and sisters, those of us who live this side of the resurrection, those of us who live this side of the pouring out of the Spirit and the people of God advancing to every tongue and tribe and people and nation, how much more do we have examples of God's living, breathing faithfulness to his people 2,000 years from the resurrection of Jesus? How much more do we have examples of God faithfully fulfilling all of his promises in Christ so that we might trust him unequivocally? Brothers and sisters, if you are having trouble doubting, or if you are having trouble allowing for the good promises of God to sink deeply into your soul, look around you today. Look around you at the people in this sanctuary who are gathered in Jesus' name to exalt him and just start talking to other believers and saying, how has God been faithful to you lately? What has God been doing in your life to show you that he's good, to show you that he's gracious, to show you that he's loving and kind and that his hope and that hope in him is truly secure. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways that we fight doubt and despair and we fight hopelessness is being a part of a community of hope. Seeing God work and move in his community to see him follow through and come through in situations and circumstances when it is difficult to trust his character and act in faith. If we do this, brothers and sisters, if we take God at his word, we believe in his competency to follow through on his word, his promise itself becomes an anchor for our soul, as we see in verses 16, 17, 17, and 18. Verse 16, For people swear by something greater than themselves in all of their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. This verse is the acknowledgement of the validity of the pinky promise. 
Or if you want a serious, more serious example, the validity of your mortgage. I promise to pay you back my loan on my house, and if I don't follow through on my promise to pay back my loan on my house, you can, as a financial institution, take claim of my house. This is how human promises are guaranteed. They're given an oath. We call them either contracts or agreements or some security arrangement in these days. This is common practice throughout all human cultures to verify a promise to say it will be accomplished. But how does God guarantee his promise? Verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. He made, he, we've already seen God swore on himself, but he didn't just swear on his own character. He made an irrevocable oath to follow through on his promise. Yeah, God's word should have been sure enough for Abraham. Abraham needed no further confirmation that God would be true to his word, but God still went out of his way to be doubly, to give it to Abraham a, a double, to make it doubly sure that his promise would be rooted in his character, that he made an oath with him. Verse 18 makes very clear the implications of God's promise secured with an oath. Verse 18 so that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Hope has an anchor. God himself revealing a, an oath, a covenant with his people that is irrevocable. And Abraham fled from his home nation to go to a land that was not his own on the promises of God, and God followed through with that. How much more should we who have fled for refuge from the danger and toil and sinfulness of this world find strong encouragement for the hope that we have in Christ? In 2009, uh, Andrea and I, my wife, we, we purchased our very first home. It, uh, um, I still remember the meeting rather clearly when we got together with the real estate agent, the lawyer, the seller, and we're all in the, the, the boardroom of this, uh, real estate, this title company to, to sign the final papers at, at closing. They handed these huge documents to Andrea and to myself, um, and, this should be no surprise to you, but because I'm a pastor and I'm a man of the word, I had to read every single word of the contract. And they set it before me and it's this huge thick stack of papers and they notice that my hand is scanning as I'm going down, turn over, hand is scanning as I'm going down. And as I'm doing this, the lawyer, our lawyer like elbows me and turns to us and says, Carl, you're not going to have enough time to read the entire contract. You're just going to need to sign it. And he, he, giving me this, like, you need to just keep moving forward. You need to keep moving forward. Just sign the papers and we'll move forward with this. And uh, to which I responded, you don't think I can read every single word of this? Watch me. I didn't have to say that, but I said it with my eyes. 
married couples, you know exactly what that look is. And I went through every single page, every single word of that document, signed where I needed to sign to try to understand everything that I was oblig- obligating myself to. And as I was turning through the papers and I'm seeing these astronomical numbers that are built into this contract, I could feel the anxiety in my soul start to well up. Have any of you experienced this? Maybe it's not at mortgage, but in other, in other cases where you realize, oh my goodness, what happens if I say something wrong from the pulpit and uh, my, the, my employment fires me? Oh my goodness, what happens if we get pregnant? And uh, she did, actually, within a couple months of that. That was weird. Um, but I digress. <laughs> I begin thinking within my soul, what happens if some of the trees that are overgrown into our, uh, that go over uh, the roof of our house, what happens if the tree just falls on the house and our insurance doesn't cover it? And my entire soul, my entire life begins filling up with all of the what ifs. And if I'm honest with myself in the midst of those what-ifs, as I'm signing the contract, the only thing that I have to take comfort and joy in in that moment is that I'm just going to keep working hard and I'm going to keep paying off my mortgage. The only thing that I have to hope in in that moment is that I am going to follow through with my very own plan to pay back this mortgage. Because in a very real way, any one of the what-if scenarios could take it away in a moment. There's no security, even though I think I have a well-paying job. There's no security, even though I think I have a strong marriage. Even There's no security, even in the fact of signing the papers and signing the insurance agreement that's going to uh, hopefully rectify financially if something bad happens. It could all be taken away in a moment. There is no certainty or hope in your mortgage. Can I get an amen? (laughs) But you can very easily see why the subtlety of the definition of hope has changed, can you not? Because genuinely, there is no earthly or worldly hope in anything that is certain. All of it can be taken away in a very moment. And this is why God goes out of his way to Abraham to give him not just a word, but also an oath that says, if you continue to flee from this world and you bank your life upon my good promises, I guarantee I'm with you. I promise you I will never leave you nor forsake you. Surely I will bless you. And that promise itself becomes an anchor for Abraham's soul. Brothers and sisters, those of us who are struggling with doubt or fear or despair, those of us who woke up this morning not really knowing, is God good? God gave an oath to humanity 
through the person of Jesus Christ, dying on the cross, being raised from the dead, pouring out His Spirit upon His people so that He can say, like He said to Abraham, surely I will bless you. The certainty of the resurrection is the anchor of our hope. And if you don't believe that, then God is a liar. Look, he explains it in verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now he's bringing back this priesthood language. In the nation of Israel, the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, would go in behind the inner curtain into the Holy of Holies, which was a place that symbolized the very presence of God. And he needed to bring the proper sacrifice to enter into the Holy of Holies. And if he was the truly appointed high priest over the nation that brought the proper, proper sacrifices on the specific day, the entire, the sins of the nation for the entire year were atoned for. It was the day of atonement. And so the Israelites, like going to sign the contract of their mortgage, every day, the, every year, as the Day of Atonement began to uh, come to, on the calendar, the, their anxiety would begin welling up. I sure hope our high priest is, is up on his sacrifices. I sure hope the, the high priest has an unblemished ram that, that he can offer on, before, on the mercy seat before the Holy of Holies so that we as a nation might be forgiven of God and everybody's anxiety in the whole nation, if they were truly God-fearing people, their entire anxiety would well up and be like, oh no, I hope he has done all of the ritual sacrifices that are necessary so that God will atone for our sin for that year and we can, with joy, continue to worship him and and there was this anxiety of, oh no, what happens if he doesn't follow through with what the oath between Moses and God was set to accomplish? This was built into the spiritual DNA of the nation of Israel. Yearly, they needed to renew their hope through the sacrifice of the high priest. The author of the Hebrews takes that language, that understanding, and saying, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, going into the very presence of God, and now he brings it all back around to who the true, real, better high priest is that he will explain in chapter 7, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest. What's the word next, the word thereafter? Forever. After the order of Melchizedek. 
to the original audience who hears this, that says, this is a high priest who does not need to renew his term every year. This is a high priest in which our anxiety before God of not knowing if he is going to accept the sacrifice of our high priest or not until he's actually in the Holy of Holies, all of that has been fulfilled through the person and the work of Jesus. And therefore, the steadfast anchor for our soul has a name and our hope is a person. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. That doesn't just mean he gets out ahead of us. It means he has gone on our behalf before the presence of God where he one day will bring us to him in that place. It means that forever at all times and in all situations that your life has experienced, God has a high priest before his throne ministering on your behalf. He has gone through the inner, the, the inner place, behind the curtain. This is the author of the Hebrews' way of saying that when Jesus sacrificed himself, when he laid down his life for his people, the resurrection being raised from the dead, being brought into the most holy place in heaven itself shows the entire world that the check cleared that the payment once and for all was made. And that, brothers and sisters, is a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. There are so many uncertain things in our life, is there not? That's why we use this language of hope as uncertainty. I hope I can pay my mortgage later this week, but later this month. It's an optimistic wish. I just hope that it could happen. But the Bible clearly affirms hope is not uncertain. Hope is found in a person. Hope is not vague or fuzzy spiritually. It can be clearly seen in the person of Jesus. Hope, spiritually speaking, does not even fade with this life. Hope has overcome death eternally. Hope is not drifting in an ocean, optimistically wishing, I I just hope that this vessel gets run aground into an island. Hope is anchored in the heavenly reality that this world and its troubles cannot touch. Brothers and sisters, struggling saints, those of us who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus and Jesus alone is our hope. Our hope is not in our finances. Our hope is not in our politics. Our hope is not in our education. Our hope is not even in our family. Our hope is Christ and Christ alone. If you do not know him this morning, speak with someone who does who can point you to real, eternal, substantial, lasting hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the hope that we have in our high priest, Jesus Christ, ministering on behalf of your people before you, interceding and pleading, 
spiritually comforting and encouraging, giving us the hope our soul needs through the chaos of this world. God, help us to not put our security in vain, empty things of this world, but to put our hope firmly and finally in the eternal security that we have through the one who has gone as a forerunner on our behalf through the curtain into your presence. God, we love you and we praise you and we give you all of the glory this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.